you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 2 today. We'll be concluding chapter 2 today, actually. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you are visitors, we're, you are our honored guests, and we're glad to have you. Uh, we are working our way through this book verse by verse, and we've just got started a few weeks ago, and so we have a ways to go, but uh, it is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible, especially New Testament books, expositionally, verse by verse, so that we can get all of the wisdom from God that He has given us to live off of. And so we will be this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, looking at verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 16. The title of the sermon this morning for uh, you children is Responses to Divine Wisdom, as will be part one. Uh, and again, our key words this morning will be wisdom. Uh, natural and spiritual. Probably you've noticed by now that wisdom is probably the, the main topic of discussion that the Apostle has been bringing to bear upon this church. Um, we're now probably seven or eight sermons into it, and, and, and Paul has begun to uh, write this church because of the problems that they were experiencing, internal problems, uh, problems of division, and so, just like he does in any other book that he has written, before he starts getting into practical how-tos, before he gets to the imperatives or the commands, he lays out the indicatives, the facts, the truths that, 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 that form our foundation over, over what we work off of and what we work out our faith on. And so, he's dealing with these issues from a standpoint of trying to help these people understand why and how they got off the track how they have gotten into these situations to where they are so divided. And so he's dealing with this issue of primarily of wisdom, and he's showing it from two standpoints, that there is a wisdom from God and there is a wisdom of this world. And the people of this church uh, were beginning to rely and uh, were beginning to allow to creep in the wisdom of the world uh, and, been, and molding it together with what they perceived to be the wisdom of God, and that was creating problems for them. And so Paul is... Uh, is laying it out in black and white terms that there is no middle ground. You cannot bring together the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God. In fact, whenever you begin to bring in the wisdom of God to anyone uh, who, is, who is worldly or has worldly aspirations or worldly mindsets, uh, they will begin immediately to declare it as folly and foolishness. Uh, and Paul made that very clear in chapter 1 that the wisdom of God is actually foolishness to those who are perishing. And so last week we looked at uh, how, we, how we attain this wisdom, where it comes from. It comes from the Spirit. It is not of, uh, it's not of this, the rulers of this age. Uh, it's a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Uh, and so we, we see that we have attained that primarily through the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is through His wisdom that we attain this wisdom. Uh, and so now we get to the point of, okay, we understand what this wisdom is. We understand what it's for and what it does for us. But how, how do people respond to this wisdom? How, do, how, how come this person over here gets it and this person over here does, doesn't? Why, is it, why, is, why doesn't everybody, especially this for the child of God, have you not thought this before whenever God has enlightened you and He's converted you and you understand things from a spiritual mindset and you look around at your friends and maybe even your family members and you say, why don't you get it? Why don't you see what I see? What is going on? Why can't you understand? And so Paul is dealing with this because we need to understand uh, exactly how and why people respond to the gospel the way they do. 
And so he's, he's go, coming at it from the standpoint of t- he's going to lay out three different responses. And we're going to deal with the first two this morning. Uh, and then we'll look at the other one uh, next week. And so I want to read verses 14 through 16 for you and then we'll, we'll begin. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so we see here very clearly that he's laying out in these three verses two, two responses, two different groups of people, natural person and a spiritual person. And so these are the two we're going to be primarily focusing on tonight, to this morning. And so let's start by looking at verse 14 and see who is this natural person that Paul is talking about and why does he respond the way he does? He says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Who is a natural person? What does it mean to be natural? Well, the Greek word that's translated natural is the word soukikos. It comes from the root word suke, and that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but it should sound familiar because psychiatrist. Suke means soul, and so psychiatry and psychology today is really the study of the soul, the study of man and how he responds to his environment. And so that's where we get that. That's what he's talking about here. That's who this natural person is. Uh, the immaterial part of man with, its, with his natural animal instincts is who this natural person is. The natural person is a person born as a descendant of Adam, created in the image of God with a soul and a body. And he's superimposed and contrasted with the spiritual man that we're going to look at in a moment. The spiritual man is not, is, he was born a natural man, but now he's a different man. He's became a man who is spiritual, who is being get, guided by the Spirit of God. But the natural man is not that. He is born... Uh, since the fall, since Adam has fallen, everyone has been born in a natural state in the sense that we do, we are created in the image of God. We are not like uh, every, every other part of the creation that, just, that, that, that doesn't have a soul and a spirit of, among us. We do have a soul and a spirit as well as a body. Uh, but the natural man is what, what governs him. What drives him? What helps him to make his conclusions and make his decisions? And so it is that animal instinct, that animal uh, uh, idea of how to live. And so uh, we see that from this that the natural man is a soulish person. So in this whole text that we're talking about this morning, this is talking about uh, these two guys, these two people, these two camps from the spiritual mindset. Okay, we're not talking about physical, physical people here at all. We're talking about spiritual issues here. And so the natural man is a man with a soul, but is a man who is guided by his own ideas, his own fallen nature. And it says here, and, and now as we go into this verse further, it will explain further what this type of person is. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. So what are these things, the Spirit of God? What, is it, what are these things that He does not accept, these things of the Spirit of God? Well, if we look back, if we see there in verse 14, we see He uses that they are foolishness and folly to Him. Well, these are familiar words because we just talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, he says that, um, uh, that in chapter 1, verse 18, that the word of the cross is what is folly to, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And the same thing he says in verses 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified 
which is a stumbling block to Jews, and it is folly and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in other words, what the natural man cannot, cannot accept is that is the heart of the Christian message. It is the word of the cross. It is the word of Christ crucified. That is what is foolishness to the man. And so that is what the natural man, uh, this suke man, cannot accept. The word of the cross is not just a simple statement that Christ died on the cross for our sins. The word of the cross is actually a radical indictment against the pride of man. Uh, it, is, it is stating uh, very clearly that it describes a way of salvation which according to verse 29 of chapter 1 has the purpose that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the word of the cross is a message about my crucifixion, not just Christ. It's about our crucifixions. It's about us being crucified with Christ. That is the word of the cross about, about which uh, the, the, the natural man says is foolishness. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So therefore, what Paul is saying here in verse 14 of chapter 2, the things of the Spirit of God that he cannot accept, that are folly and foolishness to him, he's meaning and he's talking about the gospel of Christ crucified and all its devastating implications upon my pride, upon my human uh, endeavors. These are foolishness to, uh, to the natural man. A view of reality which aims to take away every ground of boasting, from in man and put it all in Christ crucified. This is foolishness to humans in their natural state apart from the Spirit. So the natural person is really a person without the Holy Spirit. He's a person uh, who, th- who sees the things of the Spirit of God as foolishness. He refers, and this is referring to the word of the cross, and this has implications against our pride. We do not like that. We see... We see ourselves in control of, our, of, our, of what we are doing. We are the captain of our souls is what the world tells us. And so what Paul is saying here is that this natural person, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot. And so that's what he goes on to say. For they are foolish to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so what he's really saying here is that the natural person, the person without the, the Spirit of God, the person who was, born, who was descended of Adam, which all of us were when we were born in this world, we have no spiritual ability about us at all. We have no ability. So what does he say when he says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God? What is he talking about? What does he mean he can't understand them? Does it mean that the natural man does not have access to sufficient information? Does it mean that he lacks the mental powers to understand the meaning of Paul's sermons? So if it means that what these two things, then how will, this man, how will these men be held accountable if they don't understand what they're supposed to be held accountable for? We see in Romans 1.20 that Paul talks about uh, the basis of our accountability because he says the very creation itself cries out against us that there is a God and thus we are without excuse. And so Paul is saying there, or, or in there in Romans, he's saying that because of that information, because of you have the creation itself, every man born is held accountable before God. And so he's saying based on that, the information is there to hold you accountable. And so 
getting back to verse 14, is, he talk, is the information available for the person, the natural man? Is it, is it the fact that he doesn't understand the message? He doesn't understand the words, the meaning of the words? He doesn't understand the language? No, I don't think that's what he's talking about because on the contrary, Paul implies that the natural man cannot construe the meaning of the gospel because when he does, what does he call it? He calls it foolishness. You won't call something foolishness until you understand that what you are looking at is foolish. So when you understand the meaning of the message itself, that is what Paul is saying, that he understands that, and he calls it foolishness. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural man because he can't see their meaning. Not because he can't see their meaning, but because, and this is it, when he sees it and regards it, he sees it as a waste of time. That is the reason he doesn't understand it. The problem in verse 14 is not a lack of clear speech, nor a lack of intellectual power to interpret. The problem is that when the word of the cross is accurately and clearly put forth to the intellect of the natural man, has interpreted adequately, he regards this as foolishness. He sees this as foolish, as folly, as useless. And we see this further in the last phrase, he says, because they are spiritually discerned. The word discern here is the same one translated in verse 15 to judge. In my, in my Bible, it says to judge. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. And so the word really means to assess or put some appraisal to, to make value judgments about something. So when Paul says in verse 14 that the reason the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit is that they are spiritually assessed or praised or judged, it becomes clear that the basic problem is not intellectual inability. It's not that he doesn't understand the words. It's not that you can't sit down with a natural person and explain these verses and he understands the grammar you're using and the logic that you're using to try to make your point. It's not that. The problem is the moral inability to assign the right value to it. That is what he cannot do. That is what the natural person cannot do. There's a big difference between saying that the things of the Spirit are gibberish or saying that they are foolish. Foolishness is an assessment you make of something you have understood but regard as ridiculous. That's what he's saying here. Gibberishness is a description of sounds that are unintelligible. So the problem with the natural man is not that he describes describes the gospel as gibberish, but that he assesses it as foolishness. It's useless. When he looks at it, when he sees the ramifications of what it's saying, he's saying, I do not agree with that. I will not accept that. That is foolishness. And so that is, what he, that is the way he describes it. So when Paul means in verse 14 that the natural man is not, a, not able to understand is that he is not able to understand that the things of the Spirit of God is valuable. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying that he can't, you can't reason with him and, and explain these things to where he understands the doctrine of justification or sanctification or election or any of these things as you explain them. But what he's saying is that once you explain this to the natural person, the person who is without the Spirit, he is going to say that's folly, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, that's useless. I will not accept that. He rejects it as rubbish. And so really what we're seeing here laid out in this verse is really the doctrine of total depravity, the doctrine of total inability. Um, several verses that, that, that teach this further, we see this in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see what he's saying? Unless a person is born again, he can't even see 
the kingdom of God. That born again, that being born again has to happen first. And then he will begin to have a spiritual perception. He says further in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you see what he's saying? No one can come to me. There's an inability. That word can means you are not able to do something. It's not that you may. He's not saying no one may come to me. He's saying no one can come to me. It's as if I, I cannot bridge this gap that I have to get over to get there. There's no ability there. And so he said, the only way you can come to me is if the Father overcomes that and draws you, literally drags you to him, and I will raise him up the last day. (laughs) Jesus, when talking to uh, some of the spiritual leaders in John 8, he says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you see what he's saying? He's he's talking to these people saying, why don't you understand what I'm saying? Why don't you get it? You should get it. You are the religious elite of Israel. Why don't you understand it? Why why can't you bear what, what I'm saying? Because you are not of mine. You are of your father, the devil. And he clearly says this in John 10. He tells the Pharisees, and this was a scathing rebuke. He says, But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so he's saying there, because of that inability, because you are totally depraved and and not just sick, you are totally dead in your sin, because of that, you cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Because when when you begin to assess them, whenever you begin to place value on them, you declare them as valueless. You cannot receive them. And then he says in Romans, Paul says in Romans 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that is the clear teaching of Scripture that says, In and of ourselves, in our fallen state, we have no ability to to do anything that's pleasing to God. We are totally depraved. And we are in that state because we have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit to discern these things as praiseworthy. I admit whenever I remember back whenever I first, I believe when I first started coming to this church over 10 years ago, I was struggling with these doctrines uh, that were being taught here, the doctrine of predestination and election and some of these things that were new to me. And I was, I was, I remember back, I was going back and forth for about a year, you know, trying to say, okay, I see that now. No, I don't see that. I don't agree with that. And so I'm wrestling, and I, and I kept trying to, to focus on the doctrine of election and predestination and limited atonement and all these other juicy things that we, we Reformed people like to talk about. But it was when I began to grasp this understanding of total depravity and total inability that all of these other things made sense to me. This is the key to, uh, to that, that unlocks everything in how you do ministry and how you preach and teach and understand the Word of God. When you understand the fact that man in and of himself, apart from the work from the Holy Spirit, is dead in his trespasses and sins. That impacts how you do everything. That impacts how you look at yourself. Because when you understand that you were once a natural man as well, and we're going to look at this, we're going to look at the other side of this, the spiritual man here in a second. But when you understand that you were born in trespass, you were dead in your sins as well. And that the Holy Spirit came and overcame that for you on your behalf because you were unable to do it. Then it creates a humility and a thanksgiving in you towards God. 
And so uh, we need to understand that, uh, that when the gospel is presented accurately, when it is put forth in all of its ramifications, when we understand the gospel is Christ crucified, the world will hate that. The world will place no value on that. They will look at us and mock us and laugh at us and say, that is a ridiculous message. Go away from me with that foolishness. I want none of it. But we have to understand, we can't get upset about it. And I'm going to talk about that at the end, about how we relate to these people. We need to realize why they're doing that. Okay? We need to see it that they, they could do no other. And the reason that we're not doing that at, at this very moment is only by the grace of God in our life. And so we need to see that one of the responses to divine wisdom, which is the gospel, is to dismiss it. And, we, and those who are in the flesh, who, are, who have not received the gift of the Spirit of God in salvation, will do that one, 10 out of 10 times. Every single natural person who's ever lived does that. And so that is the natural man. That is the first response. The second one is the spiritual man, verses 15 and 16. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the term spiritual man here does not really refer to a special class of Christians, or sometimes we refer to them as super spiritual or super Christians. Um, That's really not what he's talking about. To be spiritual here means to have the Holy Spirit in your life. If you are a Christian at all, the Holy Spirit indwells your body. He indwells you. So the spiritual man equals the saved man or the believer or the born-again person. Paul basically is making two points about the spiritual man. First, he says, those who are spiritual understand God's truth because the Spirit lives in them. They understand God's truth because the Spirit himself is living in them. That's the implication of the phrase, the spiritual man judges all things. Again, this is this word we looked at a while ago. It means to appraise, uh, to, to put value to something. Uh, in the art world, there are certain people who are full-time art appraisers. They can look at a painting and say, that's a forgery. Or they can look at a painting and say, yeah, that's worth $5,000. Or that's a Rembrandt. That could be worth multi-millions of dollars. These appraisers are well-paid people because they have the ability to spot the real value of something, of, of, a, of, a, of an art, a piece of art. I don't have that ability. I could look at a painting and, and you know, it w- I wouldn't know a Rembrandt from a fake. Uh, and so I don't have that ability to, to assign a true value to something like a piece of art. Uh, how many of us like to watch the Antiques Roadshow? You know, you don't like it? Some of you do? Come on now. That's a good show. You know, you, you know, like to see the guy's face light up when he says, oh, that's worth $10,000. And they're like... You know, they don't know what to say. And so, yeah, I like watching that show because every episode it features someone who buys a lamp or a dresser or something. They bought $40 at the, at the flea market years ago and only discover it's worth some multi-thousand dollars or, or even more than that. And then, then when we watch that show, we want to immediately run up to our attic, right, and see what we got hiding that we can go pawn off for several thousand dollars. Well, that's, that's, that, that's the essence of what he's talking about here. We're, we're, we're making accurate appraisals about these things because these guys that are on that road show, they're, they're, they're guys who are appraisers in that, in that part of anti, whatever antique uh, specialty they're in. They understand. They don't just say, okay, yeah, I now deem this piece of uh, this lamp worth $10,000 because I say it. No, it's because of the whole 
the whole art, the whole lamp world, I guess you could say it, has placed that value on that piece of, um, on, that, on that furniture or whatever it is. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He says, Paul said that because we have the Holy Spirit, we can properly appraise things and, and put real value on things. We, we have that ability now. We can look at things and make those judgments, make those appraisals. In 1995, Greg and Carolyn Kirshner decided to leave their thriving medical practices because both of them were actually doctors to go to Nigeria and work in a missionary hospital. And many of their friends and families began to strongly object. How could they, in their mind, throw away such a promising medical career to go work for almost no money in an understaffed and under-equipped hospital in a dangerous place like Nigeria? I mean, that's, that's a decent question, right? Why would we do that? Why give up a comfortable life here for a life on the mission field? Why would we do that? In the end, this, the answer was simple and clear. Greg and Carolyn appraised the work of God over here in, in, in Nigeria, in, the, in this area, as being of greater value than making a boatload of money here in the States and a practice that they could have. They didn't despise the money. They're not saying that the money itself that they could have made here is evil or that doctors who make money as Americans are evil. They weren't saying that at all. They were looking at their lives and what God had gifted them and they seen a need in the kingdom of God amongst people who were suffering and they put a greater appraisal upon that. They made a judgment to say that, yeah, we could make thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars of he- right here and build a huge house and have vacations and all these things that, are, that really there's, there's not really anything wrong with. But at the end of the day, what is the eternal value here? What will I get? Will I, what will I get the greatest value of? What would God have us do? And they said, to go and, and use the gifts He's given me in this foreign land. And so they put a greater appraisal upon that and they made their decision accordingly. And so that is what Paul is saying here when he says the spiritual person judges all things. He's, he's Now because we have the Spirit of God, we have that ability to see life the way we're supposed to see it. The natural person sees what? He sees the here and now. He sees my life. He's looking down at his feet all the time, seeing where he's walking, what he's doing, what he has around him, what he's accumulating around him because he has this flesh outlook. He has this outlet that says, I am the king of my world and I want to, at the end of my life, I want to be seen as the king of my world. And I want to accumulate as many possessions because giving things away and living for others is foolishness to me. I don't see the value of that. But the spiritual person can see based on the fact that we are not citizens of this world, based on the fact that we are pilgrims and this is not our lot, this is not our home, this is not our world, He says, rubbish to that stuff. I don't need that stuff. That's fine if people want that stuff, but I don't need it. I need to work where God has got me to work, and I'm going to go where God has placed me. And so they put those judgments on them, and the spiritual person is able to appraise those things and understand those things because the Spirit of God is working through his life. He says there's a second thing about us, uh, about spiritual people. Unbelievers are in no position to judge believers because they do not know what we know. I mean, how many of us, I mean, when, when, when people mock somebody like that, like, like those doctors who want to go over there and they mock them, we, we want to get angry about that, right? We want to say, how dare you mock the work of God? How dare you look down on them? 
But we don't have to do that. You know why they're doing that? Because they don't understand it. But we understand it. And you know what, what, Paul, what God is telling us through Paul here? Is that they don't sit in judgment upon us. We don't get our value from them. He's saying unbelievers are in no position to judge us because they don't, they don't know what we know. Because he says there in verse 15, but is himself to be judged by no one. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, by no other man. When the mighty philosophers of Athens, we just, uh, Rob just read about this a while ago in chapter 26 of Acts, when, the, uh, when, the, when they, they called Paul a babbler, they said when he stood up to preach the gospel, he was a babbler. What did Paul do? Did he sit down and say, okay, I don't know how to answer that. I guess I am babbling. I'll just sit down and shut up. No, he ignored them. And he preached the gospel on Mars Hill anyway. He went forth with the gospel of Christ anyway. In his mind, he said, you are not qualified to pass judgment on me, so I will not pay any attention to what you say. The message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, the gospel of the Lord is of more importance than anything. And so I understand why you are resisting me. Paul is understanding why they're calling him a babbler. But that doesn't rule him. He understands that, but he says, I will ignore that. You do not sit upon, in judgment upon me. You are not qualified to pass that type of judgment on me. So I will not pay no attention to it. And then later when Festus heard Paul preach about the resurrection of Christ, what did he say? Paul, you are out of your mind. You are crazy. You are out of your mind. Paul replied, no, I am not out of my mind. What I am saying is true and rational. And he went on ahead to preach the gospel of Christ. He pressed the truth home to King Agrippa. He would not allow an unbeliever who doesn't understand stop him from preaching the gospel. That doesn't mean he was ugly to him. He was very respectful to him. But he said, what you were saying, you cannot sit in judgment upon me. You do not understand what I am doing. Think of it this way. We can understand unbelievers but they can't understand us. We can understand unbelievers, but they can't understand us. We can understand them because we were once like them. We are all were once unbelievers. So we can understand why they do what they do. They can't understand us because they have never seen the light. A man who was born blind and now sees can truly say, I know what it's like to be blind. But the man who has always been blind can never say, I know what it's like to see. That is why we must treat unbelievers with kindness, patience, and a winsome spirit and a gracious heart while we wait for God to open their eyes because they are blind. The saved know why the lost do what they do. The lost have no clue about why the saved do what, what they do. Keep that in mind. That is a very important principle. And then he says there in verse 16, he explains that we understand the things of God because we have been given the very mind of Christ. That's why even in the worst moments, believers can make sense of the puzzles of this life. That's why when circumstances are, 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 are hurting us and hindering us and they're piling up against us, we can make sense of these because we have the mind of Christ. It's not that we have all the answers or that tragedy will never befall us or that we have an easy road. That's not the case. But because we do know the Lord, we understand the big picture. We see the big picture. And even when the pieces don't fit, we know there is a pattern to things that otherwise would make no sense. This gives us hope 
in the darkest moments and gives us faith to believe when we would otherwise would do what? Give up. We see the big picture. God is in the big picture. This explains the fundamental difference between believers and unbelievers. Spiritual vision is always greater than intellectual insight. Spiritual vision being, being, being superimposed upon us by the Spirit of God Himself who indwells us gives us the mind of Christ. And it was the mind of Christ to do what? The will of His Father. He came down from heaven to do the will of His Father. And so that is the, our mind as well. And as long as we have that mindset, we have the right ability to appraise all things. We have the ability to discern. That's one of the chiefest problems with Christians today is that we have no ability. To, we, we don't act like we can discern. I'm not saying we don't have the ability. This clearly says we have the ability to discern, but we don't act on it. And so what he is saying here is that we do have that ability and no person sets in judgment upon us. No natural fallen person. So why don't unbelievers understand? They can't. They don't have the Spirit. They need the translator of the Holy Spirit. Without the divine translator, the gospel is just foolishness to them. They can't understand it. They will reject it as useless. That's why they roll their eyes when you talk to them about Jesus. You might as well be talking Greek to them. That's why they laugh and make fun of us. That explains why you feel left out when they get together. You've got something they don't have. You've got the Spirit, and they don't. And that makes all the difference in the world, the Spirit of God. So what conclusions can we draw from these two passages? What, what, why, why do we need to know this? We've got several. First, this, teach, this teaches the absolute necessity for regeneration by the Spirit of God. You must be born again, Jesus said, in order to see it. Education is good, but it has its limits. You cannot educate a pig... But you can't you can't ed, you can educate a pig, but you can't educate him into a horse. You cannot make him into a horse. You can improve yourself in many ways and make your life better in the process. But that's like cleaning the pig. You can dress him up, you can wash him, you can put a ribbon on him, but you let him go. What is he going to do? Run right straight back into the mire. Because why? Because he's a pig. You know, we don't insult the pig for doing that because he's a pig. What else would you expect him to do? The same is true in the spiritual realm. Only a radical transformation of the heart by the Holy Spirit can change a man from the inside out. All the self-help books in the world will not do anything for the natural man other than bring him further into his own pride. We need a radical... The natural person needs a radical transformation of of the heart and that can only be done by the Spirit of God. Second, wisdom and eloquence by themselves will never lead anyone to Jesus Christ. This does not argue against study and preparation per se, but it does mean that we will never argue anyone into the kingdom. Only the Spirit of God can take that, those words of wisdom and bring them into the heart of that natural person and make that radical transformation. Third, believers don't see because they can't see. Therefore, and this is what I was alluding to a while ago, We should not get angry when unbelievers act like unbelievers. How else do we think they're supposed to act? The deaf deaf person cannot hear, the blind cannot see, the lame cannot walk, the dead cannot move, and the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. I get so grieved when I see Christians want to boycott 
this and that because unbelievers are acting like unbelievers. Why, do, why are they acting like that? What do we expect of them? Do we expect them to operate in the spiritual realm when they don't have the Spirit? They cannot. And so we are the instruments that God could use in our humility to love them in spite of their ignorance to the point that maybe God would draw them out of that ignorance and place them in the spiritual realm. Humility, love, patience, kindness, gentleness, those, tr- those attributes of the spiritual person are not only to be exercised on other spiritual people, they are to be exercised on the natural person as well as we interact with them in this life. So don't get upset and angry with unbelievers when they act like the unbelievers. Pity them. That doesn't mean you, you, you just ignore what they do and say, that's okay, I, you, you can do that if you want to. It's not sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying stop the arrogant attitudes that we have towards unbelievers because they act that way. They, they, they are supposed to act that way because that's the where they are. And we need to understand that and we need to have patience with them and love them and realize that we were just like that. Fourth thing is Christian preaching must always center on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I hope that's what you've been getting over the last few weeks. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is why we come out this morning. If it's not for that, I'm wasting my time and you are wasting your time. I'm going to sleep in next Sunday. If we exist for any other reason than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then why are we here? That is why we exist. That is what we do. That is why we preach and that is why we teach. That is why we do ministry. That is why we do anything, because Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the heart and soul of our faith. The more we talk about Jesus, the, more, the better off we're going to be. The further we drift from Him, the worse off we're going to be, and the more we're going to act like the world. It is Christ and Him crucified as the center of our existence and the meaning of our life. Fifth, the Christian faith is supernatural from first until last. It is not natural in any sense of the word at all. Those operating on a purely human plane will not see it. They will, not attempt, they will attempt to explain it away or laugh it off or to find some other explanation for it. So what do we take from that? Don't give up. If they laugh at you and if they mock you, understand why they're doing it and don't give up. It's the Spirit of God who needs to overcome them anyway, so it's not up to your efforts anyway. You're not ultimately going to be the one that saves them. But you could be the agent of that. God can take your message as, as weak and uneducated as it is and save a soul. You don't have to have a theology degree to share the gospel. You don't have to have a, a Ph.D. to love somebody. These are the simple things that Christians should be doing, but we fail to do because we think we're not adequate. And we have to realize that it is not up to us to save them anyway. God... I pray, I pray and ask God that He would use us to save others. But ultimately we realize that when He does, He gets the glory. It is because of the overcoming work of the Spirit upon that hard, natural heart is what, what brought them to a place of salvation. Sixth, all this ought to make us profoundly grateful for our own salvation. Once we were just like these people of the world that I was talking about. Once we were a natural person. We would still be that way if God had not touched our eyes or made, and made them see, opened our ears and made them hear and touched our lips and had them speak. 
You did not become a spiritual person because of your good sense, because somebody shared the gospel with you, because because you were raised in the right home. You became a Christian because the Holy Spirit came into your life and changed your heart through the message of the gospel. That is the reason you are a child of God this morning. And and we need to remind ourselves of that daily. To, to, To build that sense of humility in us. And that will help us when we look out into this dying world and see these people around us who are acting foolish, that we perceive them to be acting foolish. We understand why they're acting that way. And then, I'll, then if, I'll, and if I have an understanding of my own salvation and say, except for the grace of God, there go I, then I could have that, then I, then I will have me in a better position to love that brother or that sister because I know that the roles could be reversed very easily. And it was only by the grace of God that I'm not there as well. And so we need to be profoundly grateful for our own salvation, realizing that we didn't earn it. It was a gift given us by God and we don't deserve it. We still do not deserve it. Finally, we can be bold knowing that the people of the world are unqualified to stand in judgment over us. Let us speak the true gospel of Christ without fear of what others might say. If people don't understand, it's because they can't understand. If they oppose the gospel, it's because their eyes are blind to the truth. And So, in other words, let us be bold and humble at the same time. Who is our judge? God. But how many of us live in fear of man? My hand's up. My hand is up. So many times when I don't share the gospel, it's because I fear that he's going to reject me. He's not going to be my friend anymore. He's going to laugh at me. He's going to talk about me. And so I sit, I understand these truths, but when, I, when I'm living my life, it's, I don't understand them. Because I'm sitting in fear of man and, and I'm afraid that this man's going to pass judgment on me and he cannot pass judgment on me. God has already taken away our judgment. It was upon the cross of Christ. We do not sit in judgment anymore. And so that should embolden us to go and share the good news of Christ crucified. And if they hate us, they hate us. They hate us anyway. Do you not get that? If you don't get anything, understand that. They hate you anyway. They think you're foolish anyway. So if they actually say it to you, so what? They were thinking it anyway. Let's be fools for Christ. Let's be bold for Christ. This community needs the message of Christ crucified. Yeah, there are a lot of churches around, and I'm not making judgment on any of them. All of our churches in this community need to be preaching Christ crucified, and it is my prayer that they are doing that. But uh, even with all of these churches that we have around here, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people around here this morning that are not in them. And And a vast majority of them have never been to any of them. And some of them have not even heard the message of Christ at all. And so let's don't become complacent and say, well, there's a church over in that community or this community or, or there's churches on the radio or we can send out tracts. No, we need to be bold. We need to see that every person in here, if we start looking at where you work and where you live and where you go to school, you are scattered throughout this community the way God would have us to be. 
And we have a mission field out there, and we can preach Christ crucified. Not to build this church up and to bring numbers in, but to see God glorified. And to see people come to know Christ as a Savior so that they too can appraise and rightfully judge life as it's supposed to be. That is why we exist as a church. We should pray for God to open the eyes of those around us so that we might see, so that they might see what we have seen, what we see now. Think of the work of evangelism as having two parts. We have the message and the Spirit of God has the trans- is the translator. We take the message out with our mouths. He takes that and penetrates a hard heart with it. And you know what happens then? Salvation. People are saved. People come to know Christ. As you share, as you share Christ, pray for God to give your friends, your family members, your co-workers, whoever, the translator, the Holy Spirit, that will help them understand what you were saying. Live a life of humility and thanksgiving that God has rescued you from the natural realm because the people who die in the natural realm go to hell. They go to a terrible place that is a real place. And we, as Charles Spurgeon said, if people go there, they should have to to leap over our bodies as we grab hold to their ankles to keep them from going That should be the type of people that we are. We understand why they reject us, but we also understand that God has placed us here with the right message at the right time. The right message is the same message it's always been, the the message of Christ crucified upon the cross. That is the message of the gospel. Is that the message of us? Is that the message of our families? Is that the message of our church? Is that the motto of our church? I hope it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the cross of Christ. We thank you, God, for the wisdom that you have given us. And we know, Lord, as we stand before you humbly today, that we, none of us here, deserve it. In fact, Father, we have passed judgment upon you in our past as foolishness. We were all natural people born without the Spirit, born dead in our sins. And we are thankful, God, that you have rescued us from that and placed us in your light. We thank you so much for that. I pray, God, that you would give us opportunities to to be your ministers of reconciliation to this community. Give us opportunities. Give us boldness, courage, and love. Father, as we reach out to a dying world around us, we thank you for all that you do through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.